They are on the way up. So this is a range map of reported sightings of ruby-throated hummingbirds and hummingbirds in general for that matter, reported at Hummingbird Central. So this is the map as of last night. So they are in Connecticut, right? They're not in their full numbers, but they're there. So time to put your feeders out. The hummingbirds are back in the Northeast. There is much more to these tiny forces than meets the eye. Join Lucy Diaz, Director of Special Events, as she speaks with hummingbird expert Jenny Carr, Assistant Professor of Biology at Washington College in Chestertown, Maryland, and Ryan Zipp of Hamden's own Fat Robin Bird Supply Store. They are going to be discussing the perilous migration these birds make yearly, as well as easy and interactive ways we can help them thrive in our backyards. This is the Virtual Quadcast, a podcast by the Quinnipiac University Podcast Studio in partnership with the University Events and Community Partnerships team. I'm Carla Natale. Welcome to our third episode. We are so excited to have you with us. Thank you for listening. forwards and backwards because these muscles are equal size. So if you're not a vegetarian or vegan and you've cooked chicken before, when you buy the chicken breast, that big muscle is the downstroke muscle. But if you buy chicken tenders at the grocery store, that's the upstroke muscle, which is significantly smaller because they're only really flapping down, not so much flapping up. And then hummingbirds, going back to these guys, are the most upregulated in terms of their metabolism of any vertebrate. So they have the highest metabolic rate per gram. This means that they need a lot of energy and they need to keep energy in their system to basically fuel this metabolic engine constantly. So this is associated with trade-offs, right? So if you have this metabolic engine that is stoked and fueled constantly, you need to fuel it. So they have incredibly high energy demands, but they have high oxygen demands, right? So if their muscles are constantly working and they're hovering when they're flying, which is expensive, you need to fuel it with not only oxygen, but also energy. Um, And foraging a lot, which is what hummingbirds do, puts them at risk of predators. It makes them more exposed. So historically speaking, even scientists would say, well, hummingbirds don't really have predators. And what eats a hummingbird? And they'd sort of poo-poo it, right? As someone who studies predation, I just, I couldn't settle for that, right? So this is kind of where I get really excited about hummingbird behavior. Because who are hummingbird predators? Basically everything is a hummingbird predator. Anything that can eat one and find one will eat it, including some invertebrates, amphibians, mammals, other birds. So really everything could be a hummingbird predator. So it's not really the question of who is it specifically, but what isn't a predator, right? So if we think about our local hummingbird, the only one that we have, which is the ruby-throated hummingbird, they're making this huge migratory journey and think about all the dangers and risks that they encounter along the way. So our hummingbirds, they're really native to Central America. And these are Central American jungle birds, right? who only travel up to North America to basically just spend the summer with us and then they go back home. So we tend to think of them as, oh, they've come back home. Oh, my birds are back. They're really not our birds, right? They're really Central America's birds. But that makes it kind of even more exciting. And to me, we get these really cool visitors once a year. So they're spending time. They go all the way down to Panama, which is about right here where my pointer is. Um, And they're making this huge migratory trek. 
So this species is only about three grams in mass, which is about the weight of a piece of chalk. So the fact that they're able to make this migratory journey at least twice a year and for several or many years in a row, depending on their longevity, is pretty amazing. Um, and I put some pictures up here just to reiterate and to hone in that this is one species, right? This is the male here with that red gorget, we call it. And then the female feeding chicks over here on the right-hand side. All right, so if we think about our migration uh, of our ruby-throated hummingbirds, their preferred route is actually up and over the Gulf of Mexico. So they spend a lot of time fueling up along the Yucatan Peninsula, and then they leave and fly over the Gulf, which is approximately 500 miles. They make this obviously in one stop. There's no islands really out in the Gulf. They have to do it or they'll die, right? So it's about 20 hours nonstop flight for again a three gram bird. So they're really just amazing creatures. And they are on the way up. So this is a range map of reported sightings of ruby-throated hummingbirds and hummingbirds in general for that matter, reported at Hummingbird Central. So this is the map as of last night. So they are in Connecticut, right? They're not in their full numbers, but they're there. So time to put your feeders out, right? Um, and one thing that makes this behavior possible is this process called torpor. So this is a physiological state where the birds are basically shutting down at night. So this is a video taken, well, it's just a still image from a video of a ruby-throated hummingbird in my lab. This is taken with a thermal imaging camera. So this is taking a picture of heat. So this is a bird with normal body temperature, TB. So the brighter, the whiter the color is more heat's being released. So they're really hot. Normally they're about 42 degrees Celsius, which is about 107 Fahrenheit. And that's normal for a bird. But when they go into something called torpor, they're basically putting their metabolic engine in neutral and just idling at the lowest possible setting. So as they start to cool, you can see their temperature starts to turn this blue color and eventually they just fade to background. So their body temperature got down to about 15 degrees Celsius, which would absolutely kill us without a doubt, right? But they're still regulating it. They're just basically shut off the engine, save energy, right? So while they're torpid, and this is a picture from a video that I did not take of a hummingbird in torpor, their body temperature is incredibly low. So one of the costs is they need to have enough energy stored on board to warm back up, right? Otherwise they're toast, right? But one cost that I'm really interested in is when a hummingbird is torpid, they have little to no behavioral responsiveness. So a bird that's torpid in my lab, you can touch them and basically they make this funny little squeaking noise, but then they basically try to move in slow motion. They can't open their eyes. They can't move, they can't fly. They're basically sitting ducks, right? They should have huge predation costs, right? Which is not something someone has addressed. So I'm working on that now, so stay tuned. But this really costly physiological process is incredibly important for saving energy. So in this paper that was published way back in 1991, Right, this is looking at dawn mass, the morning mass of a bird at the beginning and at the end of food restriction. And you can see that even though food is being restricted, their mass is going up. And that's because of more effective use and consistent use of torpor. When food restriction ends, down goes body mass, right? Birds don't want to be fat. Fat increases mass and makes them slower and more easy to be eaten by a predator. But when you're strapped for energy, torpor can be huge energy savings. And this is so important for migration, getting it back to migration. So hummingbirds can double in mass when they're preparing for migration. 
I had one bird that was two and a half grams in the lab and was 5.2 grams when it was migratory. It was so chubby that it, when it was flying in the lab, it was like a slow motion, like hush puppy with wings, right? That's literally what it looked like. It was a little ball of fat. It was so cute. Um, so they're really packing on the fat. And this is only possible with not only torpor, but also with that access to high energy food sources. So they can find that energy they need naturally, but this is where we get the sort of benefit of their need for high energy by putting feeders out, right? And then tracking them to our yards. So um, hopefully that provides a little bit of background of how amazing these birds are, but also how amazing just their act of arriving back in Connecticut really is. The, the fact that they made it in itself is quite a feat. That is really amazing, Jenny. Yeah, I get really excited about it, if you couldn't <laughs> tell. <laughs> so we do have one question that came in while you were talking. So someone was asking about that, that little truck that they take across, across the Gulf for 20 hours. How do they do that without eating or stopping? So it all comes down to fat. If they don't have enough fat when they leave, they're not going to make it. So it's a really, if we think about how evolution works, that's in survival of the fittest as we tend to think about it, that's a quick way to weed out birds that are effective thermoregulators or energy conservers. So if they leave Mexico and they didn't pack on enough, they won't make it. Okay. Um, they also will wait until the winds are appropriate. So for instance, they won't, they won't leave Mexico if, if there's a headwind, right? They'll wait until the winds are from the south that sort of push them along. They also migrate a little bit high enough where the air is a little less turbulent and they get water from the metabolic breakdown of fat. One of the waste products of that chemical process is releasing water. So they're actually getting water for their tissues from fat breakdown. But it all if you don't have enough fat, you're not gonna make it. Okay. Yeah. So do they eat a lot more at the beat, like when they're getting ready just before they make that trip? Yes. So they're using torpor more and they're eating a lot more. So this time of year, they're, when, they're, when they arrive where they need to be, like when they're getting to your house now, they'll stop by your feeders, of course, but you won't really see like voracious, aggressive feeding until late July, August, when things really get crazy. Because now you've got chicks you've got migratory adults, that's when you really get a lot of activity. Awesome. Thank you, Jenny. That Thank you. Really great. Thank you. All right, Ryan, we are ready to hear from you and how um, learn more about how we can support these beautiful creatures in our own backyards. Sure. Yeah, definitely. Glad I came back. I've, I've been running around a bit in between. I was listening a bit because our, uh, our store, we're able to still be open, you know, the Fat Robin, only via curbside pickups you know so uh people are calling in and it's not, obviously not our usual setup so we're a little overrun so my parents are handling the orders uh for the moment while i can come talk a bit but yeah so basically we've been here at the store with fat robin right on whitney not far from quinnipiac april 29th will be our 25th anniversary and we we're going to plan a little celebration but obviously that's going to have to be delayed a bit um so we'll be putting out you know when we're going to kind of do some stuff uh in the future but yeah so basically just share some basic stuffs about feeders we found that you know don't work well or the ones that work well and the name of the game is basically like easy to clean and also keeping up on keeping the nectar fresh because if it spoils and goes bad the birds are either going to take off or you don't want them drinking you know the spoiled nectar um so basically our favorite style of feeders in general if you could see are these saucer style feeders 
Um, they're made by a company called Aspects. They're US made. They're actually right next door in Rhode Island. Their operations, they make great tube style feeders, hummingbird feeders, some other things. But um, the best part about them is this is all it is to clean. This is it. And again, that's the easy part. You just fill the nectar up to here. And the nice part too, is as the hummingbirds have crazy long tongues, you don't have to overfill it, you know? So that also makes it tougher for bees to get in there, which can be a problem with some hummingbird feeders as well. So you fill that up a little over halfway. Also the nice part about it, it has a built-in ant moat in the middle. So a lot of times people complain, you know, I have ants, you know, coming and swarming on my feeder. But with these, you fill up just tap water in the middle there. And that really discourages the ants from getting uh, climbing down and getting to your nectar. So as far as just, and also um, in the past, we had some that were imported from different companies and the red would fade over time. You know, the more you cleaned it, these guys stay really nice and, and, uh, and vibrant red over time. And that's why we love them, you know, and they're made well. Also all their stuff has a lifetime guarantee. So we can always help you replace any parts if need be, you know, um, and just, you know, support local, support US made stuff. And when you're starting now to put nectar out, you can leave it in there for like once a week. Then you want to ramp it up to at least twice a week changing your nectar. If it's in the sun and it's really hot, you know, you want every other day. Better be safe than sorry. You know, that's kind of the name of the game. And as far as um, you don't ever want to use nectar with red in it. You know, you shouldn't be using anything with dyes for the birds. Most of our feeders have some red on them. That's really all it needs, even if just a little bud, you know, is red. And as far as um, making nectar, basically just use table sugar. It's just four parts uh, water to one part sugar. Just the water has to be boiled hot enough so the sugar dissolves in it. We carry this kind of stuff instant. It's not no better. It's not going to attract the birds better. It's just finer. So if we just use like really hot tap water, it'll just dissolve easier. So some people like using it. It's a little simpler in the process. So I don't ever try to sell people on it. Like this is going to bring the birds better or anything. You know, it's just easier. So the name of the game for a lot of people, if it's easier, they're going to stay up on it more. Um, another feeder we like a lot from these guys, if you want to keep it close and they will come, is these little guys suction cup right on the window. And this is another one by that company Aspects. Um, there's a small one that's called the Gem. The other one's called the Jewel Box. I believe it's a little bigger. Um, but this one's also easy to fill. Um, you just open it to fill it. And uh, same you know, principle here um, on that. And it's really cool because if you get them coming right up to your feeder, they will come right up to the window and you can watch them with the kids and even cats you know, love kind of watching them. We have some other cool window bird feeders as well. And you, know, you can get them in spots that you might not be able to put a pole. The other thing too, people usually ask like, can I put it on the same pole setup as my regular bird feeders or near it? You could, but we recommend don't putting it on like the same if you have a double pole or triple pole, whatever. Don't put it right next to it. Maybe put it even if it's five feet away or if you have a separate little spot as you know the hummingbirds can be the aggressive ones a lot of times even though they're little guys you know they could be aggressive and get ter uh, territorial so um we recommend you know a separate setup uh it's kind of tough here on the setup but we have this guy it's like a double arm deck hook that's really cool so you could put something like that on and put a feeder on one and then like a hanging plant on the other like hanging fuchsia plants are always a real popular one you know they like any tubular flowers pinks uh, reds, purples, oranges, stuff like that. So the fuchsia plant's a nice one. I think like May or so they start coming out. I'm not a flower expert, so don't quote me on that part of it. But uh, but it's nice if you can have a flower on one side and the hummingbird feeder on the other. And if you don't have a spot, we have these real simple kind of like lightweight um, kind of poles that can just go in the ground. This just stands up. But you don't need a crazy heavy duty hook like you might need, you know, for a heavier bird feeder. But just you could put it in your yard or put it in a garden. So we have all that stuff. And and right now, obviously, we can't have people in here, but call us up. We have some on the website. You can email us. Um, I can give the info at the end, but we're here to help you and 
you know, answer any questions. Um, as far as when to put feeders out, you can start now. We always tell people rule of thumb around here is the third week in April. Um, there are some early ones that start around the 15th, you know, so they could start showing up later April. And then by May 1st is when we really start seeing them show up around here, same time as like the Orioles too, which we had a really good spring for the, the Orioles last year. So we're hoping we have another good one for those guys. Um, but yeah, definitely by May 1st, you want them up. And then as they keep passing through us and keep going north, it does slow down. And I believe I caught Jenny talking about how later July around here, especially because now you have all the new young and the adults, it starts picking up. And then basically like later July into September in Connecticut here is like peak, you know, because then all the young and adults from north start passing back through. So sometimes people will get frustrated because they put it out now and they might put it out early and they're like, I'm not getting any. And it's like, if you do get frustrated and you want to stop, you know, I recommend keep going, but definitely like put it back out like mid to late July again, you know, because then you do have a, that's the best shot around here. Some other feeders that we'd stop carrying like years ago, we like these real pretty ones, you know, they're glass, they're ornate, they have these tubes coming out. They're nice looking. One, they're tough to clean. The other thing is just by physics design, when they heat up the glass, it starts dripping. And all those ones with tube, they drip, drip, drip. One, you lose the nectar. And two, those are just a magnet for wasps and hornets and bees and things like that. And they break easy. So a lot of people, yo, you don't have those decorative ones. And we always did, but it's like, whenever we have products here that we get more complaints than compliments, it's just not worth it for us. We're all about, we want people to have things that are good and we can get parts and they're going to be easy to maintain. So those, although they're pretty, they're not the most functional. And then also they don't have any kind of built-in ant capability. So if you have a nice feeder you do like, I do have uh, these ant moats that like the first one I showed you, the uh, Aspects feeder has it built in. So basically this has a hook on the top and a hook on the bottom. So you basically would just hang it. So if you have a feeder like this one, kind of a nice one, still pretty simple to use. Um, you just fill this with water and then you would hook it at the top. So now if the ants come down the hook, it's gonna be tough for them to get through this um, you know, dish of water before getting to the feeder. So if you have a nice feeder that you do like, but you're frustrated with the ants, uh, these guys here are really good. They're like 6.95 you know, for this little ant guard here. Um, so that's a handy little tool there. Another thing some people like too we have is there are these little weather domes. So sometimes people like to have it over them. Um, it's not needed, but it's another accessory. Keep the birds, uh, the nectar, you know, if it rains from diluting. Um, these, and some people like the look of it too, you know, so these hook, there's a hook underneath and above, and then they hang right uh, under the feeder like this. So real simple. And this is a similar one from that company aspects out of Rhode Island. It's a little more ornate, again, tough to see here, but it's got some etching at the top. Uh, a little finial on the bottom, a little kind of curly Q hook. So if people want to spice up the other one a little bit, a little too plain, this is another one, but again, the same uh, same ease of opening to fill and clean. Again, which is the name of the game. Because um, like, you know, I've heard horror stories, like I mentioned quick about people like, they're not coming. And I'm like, well, you changing the nectar? Well, no, like, when did you last put it in? I don't know, like three weeks ago. I'm like, no, no, take it down, take it down. That's not good. You know, it's just bad in in many areas, you know. So so that's the thing. Um, and basically, yeah, so you can start putting them up any day, but don't get frustrated if they don't show up. Third week of April, May 1st, we always say by May 1st, have it up. And you're going to get that first wave. And then it's going to slow down a bit when they're nesting. And then it's going to kick back up in, in later July. And also May 1st, if you want to put out for the Orioles around here, 
like I said, quick, last year we had a really good record number of people getting them and numbers of them around, and they will eat the orange halves, but we found the orange halves, you cut it open, the Orioles, they'll only really go for that for the first stretch. Once they get into nesting, they kind of leave it alone. We found the best thing the Orioles like is grape jelly, just plain grape jelly. They love it. They'll keep eating it all summer until they take off. So we have some feeders that have the dishes for the jelly and also the spikes for the oranges, but you don't need anything fancy at the end of the day, but we do have a couple. And so, yeah, so if you have never had Orioles, you know, May 1st to try to put them out. They're beautiful orange and black, you know, birds as well. So they're, they're great to have around. And uh, starting next week in the store, every week we're doing some discounts. So next week, I think starting Monday to Saturday, we're doing 10% off all hummingbird and or, uh, Oriole, any nectar type feeders. So if you're looking uh, to pick something up, you know, uh, give us a call. We can get you set up with it. And uh, our website is fatrobin.com. You can see the contact in there. It's just the word email at fatrobin.com. Um, our number's on there as well. It's 203-248-7068. Um, and like I said, we're doing uh, the curbside pickup, so it's real easy. We can help you figure out what you want. Um, call us up. And then when you get up front, call us again. We mask up, glove up. We go out. We put it in. So it's a whole new a whole new world here, but we're just trying to adapt. And, uh, you know, it's going well so far. It's crazy busy today. So my parents are running around. So as soon as I finish up here, I'm going to go back to helping them. But, yeah, I was Thank you for inviting us. And, uh, you know, it's great. And hopefully, nice part too, we've been saying it's the birds don't know the craziness that's going on. So it's like, and it's a nice distraction. So now more people are at home than ever, whether they're working from home or they're just at home now on a break. So like the birds kind of give us this nice peaceful thing. So people have been ordering a ton of bird seed and we have every kind of bird seed you can imagine, feeders, poles, squirrel baffles, squirrel proof feeders, all that stuff. And we've been here 25 years, so we know what works, we know what doesn't. Uh, we have binoculars as well if you need something to, you know, get a closer look on everything. But yeah, we're here to help you. We've been Hamden, Hamden business local 25 years now. So thank you again. Thank you, Ryan. That was really awesome. And, and you, we have actually a ton of questions in the chat box and um, you've answered a lot of them. Three okay. Of them. <laughs> thank you. Sure. But I'm just going to go through a few more questions here. So okay. someone was asking about, are there any plantings? that folks could put in their backyard. And this is for Jenny or for Ryan. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not, I, I know bee bomb they love, cardinal okay. flowers, thing like that. Jenny might know more again. I'm, I, I dabble in, in the flower stuff, you know. So. Yeah, um, bee balm and cardinal flower, definitely yeah. two like native flowers that are not only beautiful, but they're really kind of evolved for hummingbird pollinators. But really, hummingbirds, any kind of flower, they will visit. Um, they definitely like red hot poker, which is not a native flower, but they love it. It's the one that kind of comes up in a spike with the little um, yellow and orange, like flowers that come off the side. They will visit all of your butterfly bushes, things like that. There's, if you have any native um, jewelweed growing around your house, it's also called spotted touch-me-nots. They love those. Those flower more in the late late summer, early fall, which is great for the migratory hummingbirds, especially in the young. Um, but there's a lot of different flowers. And like Ryan mentioned, they really cue in on bright colors. But that doesn't mean though they won't also visit white flowers or yellow flowers or something like that. So really any flowers that you can have native is best, um, just so we're not spreading, you know, more invasive species around. But those are the ones that come to mind as ones that they particularly like. And then we have another question about their diet. So someone's asking, do they switch um, from nectar to insects um, to up their protein prior to migration? They um, actually, they switch, they eat insects 
off and on all the time actually so sometimes if i have access to fruit flies one of my colleagues does fruit fly work i'll put it in the cage with them and they like it looks like they're having a blast just like chasing these little fruit flies around so they will eat flies even as adults but really the most they spend catching insects is actually to feed young so when the babies are growing they need a lot of protein to build muscle so the babies are getting really kind of low nectar high protein diets the adults are really focusing more on just fat which the quickest way to build that is sugar so really for prepping for migration it's all about sugar mm -hmm. mm, okay and then someone asked another question about um, whether or not using the feeders interferes with pollination of flowers so hummingbirds the way that their foraging behavior is often well this species anyway is a trap line feeder which means they basically have these huge roots that they go on these big transects and they just repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat so they'll go to this bush and then your feeder and then that bush and then that bush so they learn to use your feeders as a, a supplemental resource but they're still visiting all the flowers in the neighborhood so there's no concern there about stealing their um, pollination services away Okay, and then um, a few more questions. I think that um, Ryan will probably help us answer. So someone's asking Ryan if those um, feeders that you showed us earlier can go in the dishwasher. Yeah, they actually can. Um, I'd, I'd put them in the top rack, you know, top rack of the dishwasher. Um, and maybe not dishwash them all the time. You know, not every time you clean it, I wouldn't put them in like multiple times a week, but you know, wash them and then if you wanna give them a good dishwasher cleaning, you know, every time you like alternate a couple, they definitely could. They are dishwasher safe though. Okay. Yeah. And then someone is asking in response to your advice about changing the nectar frequently, yeah. um, is it possible to make a large batch of the nectar and like keep it in your fridge and then refill? Yeah, that's what we, we usually say, you know, you know, cause it's four to one. So if you do four cups of water, one part, one cup sugar, you know, and then take that, make it up and then put it in your fridge. That's what we do at home, okay. you know? So, I mean, you know, I wouldn't make too much to last for too long, but not like you have to make it every time, you know, every time you do it. So, but yeah, you could definitely make up a batch and put it in your fridge for sure. So. Okay. Someone was asking about, um, do hummingbirds like any particular bird houses? Well, the hummingbirds, Jenny's probably more as far as, but the nests they make are like, you know, super tiny. They're going to make their own little nests at, on a branch you know, somewhere. So they're not going to use, you know, there's very few birds that are cavity nesters. People come in looking for houses and like, you know, can I get a nest for a robin or a cardinal or a blue jay? And it's like a lot of those guys make their nests in trees and bushes and things like that. You know, like the house wrens, um, chickadees, tree swallows, bluebirds, you know, sparrows, some of the woodpeckers, obviously, they're more the cavity nesters who will actually use houses. Whereas the bulk of more other birds are just going to build their nests in tree branches, bushes, you know, things of that nature. This has been really, really interesting. And I thank both of you so much. Like this is so incredibly timely that we're gonna be welcoming them in, to Connecticut in just a few weeks. And you're right, Ryan, we're home. <laughs> we're yeah, no, definitely. in new ways um, as a result yeah. of this quarantine. And this is just sure. a perfect opportunity to pay more attention to them and yep. be more intentional about creating a, a good environment for them. Yeah, and the other thing too, touch on just about birds. Some people asked about feeding, it's like, and a lot of people think I don't want to feed birds all year or certain things, or if I start or if I stop, or am I doing damage? All that stuff's kind of been dispelled. It's like, 
birds that are going to move, they're going to move when they have to move, you know, like we're never going to stop them from doing it by doing it. We're always here to help them out, supplement them. You know, there are times like actually like early spring smiles before a lot of the natural stuff has come in, that's when they need it the most. And a lot of people stop feeding birds before then because like, oh, the winter's done. It's like, yeah, but a lot of that natural stuff got them through a lot of fall and winter. And now they actually could use it before the nat the stuff starts budding, you know, things of that nature come out. So you know, a lot of that stuff is kind of old school mentality. Basically, they're like, feed them when you want to see them and help them. You know, you're always going to help them out. And, you know, they help us by by the enjoyment. And it's just a good thing overall to to do. So basically, don't ever worry about you judging. And it's funny because people are like, oh, are the hummingbirds going to show up earlier because it's warmer here? And I'm like, they're down thousands of miles away. They don't know what it's like up here. You know, it could be, you know, they move by time. Like they know when to go, you know, they're not watching weather.com, you know, seeing like, Oh, it's warmer up. Let's, let's get an early start, you know? So, so yeah. So, you know, everyone, they're all going to do what they're going to do. So. Great. We do, we have another question, um, Ryan, about Oreos. So yes. um, she's asking, where's the best place to hang an Oreo feeder? You could hang an Oreo feeder right next to your regular feeders if you want to, you know, so if you have a pole set up with multiples, um, you could do it there. A lot of times even the, the catbirds and even red belly woodpeckers sometimes will eat the orange halves and the grape jelly as well. And they're both cool birds to have around. So, but that can be next to the other ones. The hummingbird feeder we just recommend, again, doesn't have to be super far away, but just not right on top of the other one. Because you can see, you'll find out, you know, the hummingbirds are aggressive little guys you know they'll chase anybody so but yeah but the oreo feeders pretty much wherever so i'd put them right next to your normal feeders and like we have pole setups that do one two three four you can add on arms and have one squirrel baffle to stop them all so if you have any setup like that or you're looking you can put the oreo feeder right with there so awesome and then one other question just about um squirrel proofing your feeder yeah so we have baffles on a, on a pole and they work you know but you have to have the pole set up at least eight to 10 feet away from anything that they could possibly jump from. And the ground has to be flat around it. Top of the baffle is at least four feet. You don't want it too high either because then they can kind of jump around. So top of the baffle, four feet, at least eight feet away from anything and you know nothing they could jump to. And those work, or we have these feeders from this company, Brome, they're called squirrel busters. There's some different ones. They close with the weight of the squirrel on it. And those really work. So if you're like hanging it off of a deck or you have a situation where you can't get that eight to 10 feet away, those work great. They close down. Those also have a lifetime warranty on them. So if a part ever gets damaged, squirrel gets mad because they can't get in, gnaws something, we could, you know, bring it in here. We'll fix it up for you, you know, get parts and we have some parts in stock. So stuff really does work. A lot of people are kind of, they don't think, you know, something works because they haven't had the right stuff. But again, you know, over years, stuff doesn't work. We, we kick it out. We don't care it anymore. And these things really do work. So there, there are solutions. Awesome. Well, that's all we have time for today. We're so glad that all of you were able to join us today. Um, and a really big Bobcat thank you to Professor Carr and to Ryan at the Fat Robin for sharing your time and your talent with us today. Um, and thanks for all the guests for tuning in. Be sure to check out the virtual quad at qu.edu slash vq for information on our upcoming events. Thank you to Jenny Carr and Ryan Zip for participating in today's episode. This show is produced by David DeRoche, Quinnipiac's Director of Community Programming, and hosted by me, Carla Natale. I'm the Associate Vice President for University Events and Community Partnerships. To learn more about our range of podcasts, visit qu.edu slash podcast. You can subscribe to any and all of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other apps. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at QU Podcasts. 
we'd love to hear from you. Please send us your feedback, questions, and episode ideas at qupodcasts at qu.edu. To learn more about Quinnipiac's virtual events, visit qu.edu slash virtual quad. Thank you for joining us on the quad at the Virtual Quadcast. Mm-hmm.